Today I'm going to talk about something interesting. I'm going to talk about class and how that applies to glios. Uh, I'm doing this because I don't think we have language for class in the United States. I think largely due to the embargo of anything closely related to communism, especially during the Soviet panic of the 80s, we um, have taken out of our education the language for class and how class is defined and how that can be a very helpful viewpoint in which to look at the world. And I'm going to tie that back into something very specific that I see pop up from time to time regarding glios, the glios makers, and production runs. So let's see if I can thread this needle here. Once again on the Facebook groups, uh, another glios maker has a sale, items sell out, and for the majority of people, they're happy for makers to have sold out. This is a good thing. This means uh, their line is healthy and robust, and there is a demand, and they get to live another day and release another assortment of figures. But there is a small, vocal minority who miss out on drops, who don't participate in drops, and just feel the need to sort of air their grievances personally uh, in a public forum. Um, when I've encountered this for my lines, I typically send a private message to people, and, and I'm not interested in sort of call-out culture and embarrassing people. Uh, but if there's a real genuine gripe or concern, I, I tend to want to sort of privately talk to somebody and see if, you know, if there's a legitimate sort of error that's happened and if there's some kind of something I can do to help. And uh, I've almost never received a reply for these things. Um, I think that there is a correlation between public outcry and, I don't know, just uh, not having the wherewithal to actually have a conversation with somebody. I, I think it's it's more about the, the theatrics than it necessarily is about reaching a resolution that would make you happy. But this is just my experience. You know, I, I think people sort of vent their frustrations for all sorts of reasons. I, I'm just going off of what I have uh, sort of seen and interpreted. Um, inevitably, uh, some of these critiques circle around this imaginary production run number. You know, this has come up several times for several different makers. There's a small cadre of people that feel they know and can track with certainty what our individual production runs are, and that glios makers are intentionally under-ordering for what they know they can sell in order to spur chase and keep things limited, and um, essentially inflate the market with a undeserved perception of scarcity. Uh, this is so incredibly wrong on so many different levels, uh, least of which is that, <laughs> believe me, myself and all the other Glios makers and all independent toy makers out there, and even the large toy makers out there, we want to sell every single unit we possibly can. We want to make 
the exact number we need every single time. As I've explained many times before, it's sort of a lose-lose proposition. If you make too many products um, immediately, and usually more on social media where anonymity is a bigger thing, places like 4chan, there will be a haranguing of the creator that, oh, look at how many are in stock. Oh, I just checked the cart limit and they still have 50 of this style in stock. Glios is dead. It's over with. I miss the old Glios. This, you know, finally the whole house has come down. That's a very common reaction for the small vocal minority uh, when you don't sell out. And then on the flip side of that, the same vocal minority complain and bellyache that oh, you sold out within X amount of minutes. This is, you know, I, now I'm not going to buy anything. This is a terrible way to treat customers. You don't want people to have what they want. And these two sort of sets of moaning and belly aching come in unison. And it comes for almost every single drop. So as a maker, the noise is exactly the same because it, it's sort of nonsensical in either case. And they're not actually really making a case, particularly when it comes to what they perceive to be our production numbers. They are so incredibly wrong and off base. Every single item that I run, that anybody else runs, is scrutinized over. And oftentimes, it is a matter of how much we can afford to order not how much we want to order. It can also be a matter of, well, I know that I have X amount of days blocked off in the production line, and if I tack on another 10 pieces, that's gonna push out the entire order this many days. I'm gonna get things late, X, Y, and Z. The, the art of ordering product and manufacturing overseas is a minefield of variables that cannot be perceived from the outside. There are so many tiny little details that can go wrong that you have to plan and account for that can set things back quite a bit. Now, as I'm recording this, we're on the eve of trying to understand what the great variable of my lifetime of manufacturing is, this coronavirus and the relating delays. And Nobody has conclusive information on what the impact is going to be other than at some point, middle of this month, the management class of the factory are going to return to the factory and hope that their workers return. But there is a very big question mark as to what's actually going to happen when they get there. All that aside, um, I think it's important for us to break down class language. Because a lot of the perception and a lot of the whining that is going on is with a very false assumption that I don't actually think this vocal minority understand that they're making. And that is the difference in their mind between them, likely a working class person, and a glios maker who they assign a value of being professional class or even leisure class 
Now, what do those three things mean? I'm going to hop in and clarify. Tim Heidecker of uh, Tim and Eric does this live stream. I believe he calls it Office Hours. And uh, it's relatively interesting. I, I pop in and watch it every now and then, but I wouldn't say I'm a regular viewer. And he got a call um, from somebody who I think sort of identified himself as being alt-right or leaning towards the right or whatever, which is a, a, a pointless distinction, and I'm going to break down why that is later. Um, but the guy basically accused Tim Heidecker of being this rich guy. And that, um, you know, he was out of touch with normal people. He lived in California and, um, you know, was was essentially part of the 1% or the billionaire class or the millionaire class or the leisure class, as I like to sort of classify them as. And uh, Tim Heidecker had a, a wonderful way of dispelling this instantly. And I, I it stuck with me. And I think it's a really important phrase. And I'm, that being said, I'm paraphrasing this, so this is not exactly what he said. But he essentially communicated that if I stop working tomorrow, all of this goes away. His house goes away, his security goes away, his money goes away, the live show that he gets to do goes away. And I thought that was such a powerful way to crystallize where somebody stands in the world and as a very unifying device in order to figure out who you have solidarity with and who you don't, who shares the same interests as you and who does not, and who may actually be looking to push forward their interests and take away from you. So that distinction that Tim Heidecker threw out there really sums up this first sort of class. And when I say class, this is like a very sort of lazy YouTube education way of the the sort of constructs that I have found helpful. You can read Marx. I think, you know, he's very, it's very good uh, starting point. But I, I am a true believer that whatever our society is going to be, it's not going to be a symbolism. It's not going to be something that we've seen before. So I think that with Marxism or communism or Leninism or whateverism, you're always going to hit a ceiling where their philosophies stop sort of being useful and being a way to interpret reality. Um, for Marxism, I, I think that I would defy somewhat definition under his standards, because I don't think he could have imagined a world where e-commerce existed and somebody like me would be a business owner, would be part of the bourgeoisie, but also be out here in a freezing cold workshop assembling and packaging and things like that. So there is a sort of finite end to any of these classical sort of philosophies and ways of thinking. So I, I always want to encourage people to not just nail themselves down into one pocket of thinking. I don't think that's incredibly useful. But here are the sort of 
definitions that I use in my head, and I've cribbed this from a lot of different stuff. It is a, a sort of synthesis of just my exposure to different philosophies and things like that. So the first up is obviously the working class or the proletariat or whatever you want to say the majority of people are. And this is where I think this criticism of glios makers is really wrong, is really sort of misguided. Because I think that the perception of people is that the glios makers are not working class like they are. That the dollar amount that a customer spends is somehow more valuable than the dollar amount a glios maker spends to get the product from China. And I think that because of how our society is and our lack of these types of languages and distinctions, we assume that anybody we are purchasing a good from is somehow of a higher class and therefore, you know, less respectable or deserving of scorn or ridicule or criticism for what they sell or for when things sell out. Um, So how do you sort of determine if you are in the working class? Which, by the way, working class itself has a certain weight to it. It has a sort of negative connotation. And that is further proof that we've all sort of been ingrained in this ideology that being working class is something that's shameful or uh, dirty, you know, dirt under the fingernails and oil smeared on the forearms. Here's how you can tell if you're working class or not. And you can use the Tim Heidecker measure for that. If you stop working tomorrow and you never work again, what happens to your life? Does nothing happen? Is your quality of life not impacted whatsoever? Or do you stand to lose everything? Now, I know I'm in a different tax bracket than most people. I know I've done better than anybody else in my family has done. Um, I know, you know, I've achieved things that most people I know haven't. But at the end of the day, if I stop working tomorrow and I never work again, just like Tim Heidecker, this all goes up in flames. There is nothing left. You know, the, what little savings I have will be depleted. What customer base I've accumulated, they will move on. My house would be foreclosed on, X, Y, and Z. So it's very important to draw that distinction and to view the world through that because while I may be able to pump gas and not count out change from my ashtray as I used to do, in order to fill my tank, um, I am still only one disaster away, one, you know, one bad month away from being desolated, which I think is, is really where most of us find ourselves. So that's class number one. That's working class. It's easy to determine if you belong there. Uh, then I, I tend to think of things in terms of professional class, and this is, this can be middle class, but The lines get blurred between working class and professional class. Professional class people, this is where I would have been if I was still in the job market. You know, 
these are people who get their own office. Uh, they typically work at big corporations. You know, I spent a lot of time working in Hollywood and for the studio system. Um, so I would fit into this mold. And professional class are typically culled from the working class. They are indoctrinated. Maybe I wouldn't say indoctrinated. That's kind of got a negative connotation. They are or ordained into the professional class from the working class. And in, you know, a strictly sort of Marx's way of looking at it, they are there to manage for the upper classes, uh, the working class. They are, they look like the working class. They come from the working class. And so they have an ability to manage, and some would say exploit, the working class. And I think you could, you could conceivably argue that I am professional class or Glios makers are professional class because it, it might be perceived that way because we have, you know, we have a little bit of creative freedom in our lives, but professional class are precariously perched there. And just like the working class, they are a couple bad breaks of luck away from sliding right back down. And they may, they may feel because they are in the same orbit or they interact with the upper echelon that they're actually insulated. And some professional class people may feel embarrassed about coming from a working class background. They may um, want to divorce themselves from the majority of people that stayed in their hometown. They may have some deep-seated guilt about doing better than everybody else. I know these are all themes I've had to sort of deal with over the years and be introspective about. Um, some working-class people consider professional-class people to be uh, class traders, you know, to be sellouts, things like that. Um, but... It's very easy to see that the upper class really benefits from there being division between the professional class and the working class. And they will typically take any opportunity they can to sort of stoke that division. Um, above that, I sort of put, for my distinction, the leisure class. And this is your oligarchs, this is your plutocrats. And I, I make the distinction at that Tim Heidecker statement. If the leisure class stop working, uh, their quality of life doesn't change at all. That's how I define these sort of three basic classes. Um, now, I don't think everybody in the leisure class is bad. Um, I'd, you know, nor do I think there is an intrinsic good or evil value to any of these three classes as I sort of define them. But I would definitely say that the leisure class have much different interests than the bottom two classes. And I would say that not being able to have this distinction, not being able to have this language, not being taught these things, has only benefited the leisure class. It certainly hasn't benefited the professional class and it hasn't benefited the working class. You could argue that our entire structure 
is based on not having this class language and not being able to make this distinction. I, I think in large part the two-party system, this idea of Democrats versus Republicans, liberals versus conservatives, I think this is a massive con and a massive construct that doesn't exist in nature. And I think that it is perpetuated by the upper class in order to keep the lower classes at each other's throats. And I think it's a completely bogus idea because I think if you can focus and see things through the lens of, you know, where you are in life and what class you belong to, I think that you find there is a unifying chunk of ideas that your class wants and should be enabled to enact, and it would actually make people's lives all the better. Now, why do I think that independent toys and Goliath makers in particular stir such a reaction from some people uh, simply by existing and just by doing our best to put out toys? I think this is because we can see ourselves in our work. Now, this is something specifically that Marx talked about. Enfremdung, um, I hope I'm saying that right, probably not. Uh, alienation, right? He considered there to be alienation in modern work. We've compartmentalized every step in creating something so that there is not one craftsman who is tying everything together, but rather an assembly line of disproportionate uh, parts. So, Modern workers, and I believe this applies to the professional class as well as the working class, we do not see ourselves in the product that we produce. We may be a small cog in a much bigger wheel. We might feel a, a slight piece of seeing ourselves in our work when, you know, we had a menial job at a movie studio and we get to go to a premiere and we're sort of around this environment of adulation. We may feel a, a tiny piece of that, but largely in the day-to-day -day work, the majority of jobs, you do not see yourself in it. It is not an expression of what's on the inside that you create. With the independent toy world, this is, this is a very pure form of self-expression. The Glios makers are lucky enough to get to see themselves in their work. I'm in the workshop. It's freezing cold, by the way. But I'm looking at all of these creations that I can see myself in. And I know when you guys get these packages and you unwrap them, that spark is there for you too. Maybe you have stacks of childhood drawings. And maybe something like Grasshopper Night reflects that. You get a little piece, a little feeling of... Uh, uh, this dream we all have coming alive. And that makes it rewarding to you, and it makes it a joyous thing. And that's why I do this. I mean, I'm not doing it for the money. <laughs> but um, I, I am lucky enough to get to see myself in the work. And I think that in today's age, there is so little of that. Not only do we not get to see ourselves in the majority of jobs, we don't even have the language to understand that that is an important aspect 
to work and to self-fulfillment. And I think it's so, so terrible and so acute of a problem that when other people can subconsciously perceive that, it riles something in them. It, the, they may not even know that this is happening, right? This language has been, it's in, under embargo in the United States. We do not talk about class. We do not talk about the alienation of work. We do not talk about these things. So we don't have a way to perceive or articulate what that phenomenon might be. But that doesn't mean that that phenomenon doesn't exist. I believe that there's a very deep subconscious understanding that there is a yearning to sort of be creative, to be a craftsman, and to make things. I mean, human beings make things. This is what gave us the evolutionary edge. We were able to craft tools and harness fire. And as far back as civilizations go, we found little carvings, little toy soldiers, little fertility goddesses. We have always emulated ourselves in mediums as far back as it goes, even to places where written language didn't happen. We've always sort of taken what we consider to be human beings in our bodies and our warriors, and we have translated those into manipulated forms to represent a tiny little homunculi of this idea. And that's what these toys are. That's what Knights of the Slice is, right? This is, there's no difference between a little ivory Viking that was whittled down and something like Cyber Mama. This is just, it's a re, it's, a reiteration of that same idea to sort of create ourselves to make a reflection that will endure all time after we're long gone to have this little totem that showed we existed and that we are the same sort of species you know when you you go to a museum and you see these golden egyptian figurines that have somehow survived all these years. You know that that is a human being and that was made by a human being and you're a human being now, even though we're separated by this chasm of time and space and technology that was unfathomable to the people that made that. There's a connectivity there. We understand that we're all the same. It's a unifying idea. So I think, flash forward to today, where... Wages have been stagnant for a long time. Uh, job prospects are not great. Uh, we should actually be encouraged by unemployment because that means we've created enough innovation that there is unemployment. But instead, we feel it's better to put people in underpaying jobs just to keep them active, even if they're not really doing anything. And, and it's... Completely, it completely does not matter if they can see themselves in their work whatsoever. But these, this yearning to sort of create and to have ourselves present in this stuff 
that we do, um, it is there whether or not you realize it. And I think that I speculate that part of the reason there is this small vocal minority is because they're beaten down like all of us. Their day-to-day work may not provide that reflection. They may not be able to see themselves in the work they do if they are employed. I don't even know. And that that is a, a very universal thing that we all sort of need. And look, my, my life has inherited a whole new series of challenges that have made me go prematurely gray. <laughs> You know, dealing with production is something that constantly keeps you at the brink of madness and a complete meltdown, and it is panic-inducing. Is that easier work than, you know, when I used to stack bricks for a couple bucks? Um, Yes. Is it... um, Is it safer work? Am I guaranteed any more job security? No, absolutely not. So the the stressors sort of just change as you move up the ladder. You know, they get sort of bigger and the stakes are higher. And speaking of stakes, I think that that's part of what we are not imagining of independent toy creators, but of Glios makers in particular. We are not imagining or giving the benefit to the fact that these are also working class people. And a lot of times, our production runs, our production numbers are based on what we can afford, not what we want to order. There have been, I would say with every single order I have placed, there are items that get cut and items that get reduced because I just don't have the cash to do them. And I know when I'm ordering this and it's going to get released six months later, I know I'm selling myself short. I know that I'm leaving money on the table and I know that people are going to be upset because they're not going to be able to get what they want. But I don't have an endless supply of cash. I don't have endless resources. And the reality is that we don't like to sort of think about or recognize is that the risk is all on the Glios maker. There is no risk for the customer other than they may not be able to get everything they want when they want it. But right now, across the board, not just in the Glios world, every single manufacturer of plastic goods has money that is on hold because of the corona outbreak. We are all waiting and holding our breath to see when this shoe drops and what the lasting impact is going to be. I don't know of anybody that is free and clear without money tied up there. And I don't know who has so much money put in there that if things don't get back up to normal soon, that they're not going to take a huge hit to their quality of life, that they're not going to have to make sacrifices. It's it's entirely possible. So, what I would encourage 
is to sort of understand and appreciate that myself and my fellow Klyos makers, we are all in the same boat here. Um, If anything, there's more risk to us because of how fickle and how precarious the manufacturing process can be and how fragile it is. We're seeing this now in the day-to-day. So, people need to sort of push off this assumption that there is, for some reason, you know, we are in a, a higher class with unlimited resources where we can order what we need to. Um, we are all in the same struggle here. Absolutely. And, uh, I also feel like, you know, honestly, I'm preaching to the choir here. I think that at this point, the Patreon audience is pretty well adept and pretty educated about how these things really work and, and how many variables there are. So in some respects, I'm just kind of venting out loud. But um, for our new patrons who, who don't know how orders are placed or how production numbers are sort of calculated or what the real risk is, maybe this has been a sort of illuminating and educating experience. Um, I really, you know, I say this a lot, but I really do feel that I have the best fans in the world. And I think that you guys are so, so damn smart and curious about this stuff. And when I see you guys talking down these sort of all caps posters (laughs) and just very fairly explaining the realities of production that you guys have learned with me over these hundred plus Distazapod podcasts. Uh, it really, it, it so makes me happy. You know, I don't know of any other toy lines or buying experiences that really get to sort of share how the sausage is made and what a, what a crazy premise it is that we get to make these limited edition toys and how, how much all of this can go away in a flash. And you guys are all such wonderful students of this process. Um, You've learned along with me. You've come with me on my trips overseas. God knows if those are ever going to happen again. Um, And it has made you guys such smarter consumers, such more open-minded about what the real cost is for these plastic things we're addicted to. And that at the end of the day, the important things are not the material goods, not these, you know, couple ounces of ABS and PVC plastic. It's the characters, it's the story, it's the community. It's this bigger idea that, you know, all of us have stories and characters and, and, and creative yearning. And you may not get to my level, but I know for a fact that many of you have taken to pen and paper and taken to sketchbooks and since we've started this experiment with the Patreon um, your output has increased and you're designing stuff and you're building stuff and you're sketching things and it's really wonderful to see and I think within the next year or two we're going to have our first homegrown toy maker from 
from you guys amongst your ranks. Maybe we'll have a few. And that will be really fantastic because, you know, there's no real difference in where I am and where you guys are other than I've just I've been at this longer I'm not the best artist in the world I don't have the most comprehensive understanding of plastics manufacturing I am not a good graphic designer I don't have full competency at, at illustrator and things like that I've just been doing this longer and I hope that I can take you along with me, and I've already seen really great creations come out of you guys, and it's, it's fantastic, and I want to encourage that. And uh, we're all just kind of experiencing this, this dream together, and it's, it's quite excellent. So that's it for today. Tonight we got the Clutter Gallery opening. I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. If anything else, I would just ask that you be kind and be compassionate, especially to the Glios makers out there, because uh, these guys constantly have their nuts on the chopping block of the guillotine, and uh, we don't yet know how things are going to shake out with China. Um, My hope is it's business as usual. But there's a very real threat out there. And we will all collectively miss this wonderful experience when it's gone. And it's not a matter of if it's gone, it's a matter of when. I would like many more decades of making toys like this. But, um, you know, we're all on a razor's edge. So, thank you guys very much. The only thing left to say is pizza out. <laughs>